Welcome to the Beyond the Books podcast, where we're talking with the experts solving our world's biggest problems. My name is Jonah. And my name is Aryan, and we'd like to welcome you back to the Beyond the Books podcast. For today's episode, we are excited to welcome Dr. Joshua Liu, who is not only a physician by training, but also the co-founder of Seamless MD, which is a biotech company that enables hospitals and health systems to engage, monitor, and stay connected with patients. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Liu. We are actually somewhat familiar with Seamless MD because we've seen internship job postings for the company on the U Waterloo co-op portal, but it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about what your company aims to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for uh, having me on the pod. I'm really excited to be part of it. Um, I think maybe what I'll do is I'll start with the, the problem space that Seamless MD focuses on. Um, so, you know, when you think about a patient journey, whether that's a patient, you know, going through a surgery, um, whether that's a patient going through a cancer journey, a chronic care journey, a maternity care journey. Um, if you're, you're going to have a, a baby, 95% of that patient journey happens outside the four walls of the hospital. You know, when you're at home preparing or recovering and you have limited day-to-day support from the healthcare team when you're at home and, you know, our mission is to ensure that every patient gets the right care at the right time. And what we do is we use technology to help fill in those gaps um, to support the patient um, for that 95% of the time when they're at at home on their own. And when you think about um, how patients are normally supported throughout that journey, it's mostly paper and verbal instructions. So patients will tell us that they get these 50 page booklets about let's say how to prepare and recover after surgery. And they'll, for, they'll forget the information, they'll lose the information. There's no day-to-day reinforcement. It's not really personalized to their needs throughout that journey. And so ultimately it's very hard for patients to follow those instructions. And then healthcare providers will tell us that when they send the patient home in between visits, they often feel as if they're sending patients into a black hole because they have no idea how you're doing, how you're feeling, what your symptoms are. And often they only see you if something bad goes on and you end up back in the hospital or in the clinic. And so they want to get a better, have a better way to support and monitor patients when you're at home so they can catch those problems much earlier. And so altogether, you know, if patients can't follow their instructions and if providers can't keep an eye on patients when they're outside of the hospital or clinic, bad things can happen. That could be, you know, longer than expected recovery time in the hospital. That could be, um, uh, you know, potential visits back to the, the hospital, or if the patient's really sick, they may actually be readmitted back to the hospital um, for, you know, more um, significant care. And also all this additional um, healthcare resource spent on the patients drives up the cost in the healthcare system. And so what we do is provide technology that better guides patients throughout that journey to improve their experience, their health outcome and lower costs. And then depending on where you want to go next, I could definitely um, dive into what exactly we do. Yeah, thanks for that overview. So it, it really sounds like you're addressing a really critical point in the patient care experience. I'm curious, how did you come up with this idea? What, what was that process like? So you know, I did my um, uh, med school training at U of T in Toronto and I learned about all kinds of problems in the patient journey, but in particular, I ended up doing research at UHN on 
preventing patients being readmitted back to hospital after leaving. And I got really interested in the idea of using technology to better engage and support them to prevent something like a readmission. And for those who are listening who aren't familiar with these healthcare terms, um, you know, what is a readmission and why do we care about it? For example, when a patient ends up in hospital, so let's say you end up in hospital because you needed a surgery or you were very ill because you had a heart attack. When we send you home, um, you're, you're good enough to go home, but you're not your baseline yet, right? And it takes you, you know, weeks or months to recover enough to be truly back at your baseline health. And so those first, you know, 30 days after you leave hospital are um, particularly precarious times where a patient is at risk of a problem developing. You know, that could be an infection or some other problem related to why you're in hospital. And what I, what I found in my research at UHN was that, you know, a fair percentage of these issues um, could have been caught sooner if a patient was better engaged and monitored. But usually what happens is you get sent home with a piece of paper and only if a problem develops bad enough and you get sick enough, then you end up back in the emergency room and potentially readmit to the hospital. And, you know, why do we care about problems like readmissions? Uh, number one, um, you know, a patient being readmitted is a bad health outcome for the patient. Uh, but number two, it's very costly because hospital care in general um, is, is a much higher uh, cost to the healthcare system than other forms of, you know, healthcare in the community. And so, for example, every patient readmission to the hospital costs the healthcare system about $10,000. So it's very costly. And so um, that problem was the initial genesis for Seamless. And, you know, I um, met a couple of brilliant engineers in my, my last year of med school. And, you know, we, we met through an incubator program called the, um, the Next 36. And we decided to start Seamless MD through that incubator program. Um, and then midway through that program, I ended up actually graduating. I got into residency here in Toronto, but I never started it because we decided to go full time on Seamless um, and build the company out and build the product and, and try to make it work. So um, that's how it started. And uh, yeah, um, hopefully that, that answers your question. Definitely a very interesting and very important problem space as well that, that you guys aim to address. And it's great to hear about the journey that you had as well that you know led you up to that position. And just for people who don't know, UHN is the University Health Network, which is uh, situated in Toronto, I believe. And in addition to your experiences at the University Health Network and, and medical school as well, uh, are there any other specific situations that you encountered that really motivated you to take that transition from practicing medicine or, you know, about to practice medicine entering residency uh, to transitioning to the biotech space? Yeah, I think what, what I've learned is that um, a lot of the decisions that, that we end up making as people are based on compounding experiences we've had over time in our lives that shape who we are, what our interests are, what our drivers are. So for example, you know, when I think back um, to my journey, you know, pre-CMS MD, I've had a lot of experiences that shaped my interest um, for, you know, going into entrepreneurship. So when I think about myself growing up, I've always been what I call very much a builder. And so for me, for example, you know, when I was when I was 10, when the internet was so relatively native, I you know built my first website. And then when I got to high school, I got really involved in building school clubs and nonprofits. And 
when I was an undergrad, um, I started a blog that ended up becoming um, quite popular among students. And I turned it um, into a couple of, of small side businesses in, in the admissions consulting space. Um, I remember when I was, um, you know, between grade 11 and 12 in high school, um, I did the Shad Valley program, which for those who aren't familiar, it's this really great um, program um, that gets high school students um, in the summer really involved in STEM and entrepreneurship, and you um, you get to start a, a mock venture, a mock company. And so I've, I had these compounding experiences around building stuff, um, starting a few small side businesses. So I've always had the itch to start something, build something. And so I always thought that at some point in the future, I would end up getting involved more in entrepreneurship in some way. I didn't necessarily expect it to happen um, right at the end of med school. So that was a little bit more serendipitous. Um, but what actually what did happen, and people don't often know about this because um, no one really often talks about um, their failures, um, but actually in my, my third year of med school, I tried starting a different healthcare tech venture with two friends in med school. And we gave up slash failed in about four to five months. And one of our biggest challenges was that we were all, we were all medical people. So we had this overlapping skill set, but none of us were people who knew how to, you know, code or, or build a product or, or, or do other things. And so, you know, part of the reason that I went to the next 36 incubator in my last year of med school was that I still had the itch to build something and tinker around, but I knew that I needed to have partners who could complement my skill set. And so it was through Next that I ended up meeting, you know, uh, my co-founders who were more on the engineer, engineering and tech side. And so then we, we combine our skill sets to make something like Seamless possible. Um, but, but, but when I think back, you know, just to, um, you know, summarize it, I've always had the itch and the interest in building stuff. And so um, when you think about it, it wasn't like I just woke up one day and was like, oh, you know, I like building stuff. I'm going to not finish my training and start this. You know, everything I was doing in many ways, like, compounded to lead to this maybe inevitable outcome of starting something like Seamless. You mentioned earlier that you actually did Shad during high school, and uh, we understand that you've also done the Canada-wide science fair. And Jonah and I have actually participated in both these programs when we were in high school, which is an absolutely amazing experience. So what would you say are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from the Canada-wide science fair, as well as Shad, that you feel have shaped you into such an amazing leader in the biotech field? Yeah, uh, so it's awesome to hear that you, you both went through the uh, Canada Science Fair and, and Shad. I, I think they are both incredibly um, important programs for, for Canada, um, for getting young people uh, involved uh, in science, uh, I guess STEM in general and, and entrepreneurship. Um, I, I would say a, a couple of things um, made those experiences very transformational and powerful for me. I think one is the exposure to the community and the network. You know. Yes, you learn a lot of skills in these programs. You learn a lot of skills in, in you know, your, in doing your own science for projects and all that. But I think the fact that if you are fortunate enough to make the Canada Wide Science Fair or, get, or, or be part of SHAD, you are surrounded and exposed to, you know, like-minded people who are incredibly driven, self-motivated, and and excited by these fields. And that exposure and that, that camaraderie and that sense of fellowship, I think is very motivating for young people uh, to keep moving along this path. And you know, there, are, there are folks who I met through um, both those experiences that I, I'm still connected to today. 
And so I think the fellowship and, and the alumni network and all that, and the, the intense experience of going through that with people is really powerful and really inspirational. And I think there's a lot of people who, you know, the work they're doing now, whether it's in STEM or entrepreneurship or something related, can point back to the Canada White Science for or, or Shad and say, that was a major reason I'm doing what I'm doing today. Um, I think probably the, the other thing is that it lets it, it let me tap into a lot of things that I just wasn't getting in traditional school curriculums, right? Like in the traditional school, you're not starting a mock company. Um, you're often only doing pro science projects or experiments that are based on a a standard product, standard simple protocol that everyone in class is doing. But you know, both these programs forced you to take initiative to build your own thing, do it your own way, exercise certain creative muscles that you're not really using in the traditional school system. And so I think the fact that they're both programs that force young people to actually think outside the box, do things very differently, have autonomy over exploring specific topics, whether it's science topics or businesses that they personally find interesting. I think that's very powerful. And I think it helps cultivate that sense of like self-drive initiative, um, autonomy. Um, and I, and, and I think um, that for me, especially helped help me kind of get the confidence to like, okay, like I can start stuff, I can build stuff, you know, and like, I don't have to, I can do stuff that's not, you know, prescribed to me by the curriculum. So I, th I think the, the fellowship, and the initiative it helps create were both very powerful for me. It's a really insightful answer. I think that as someone who has also participated in these programs, I very strongly agree, especially with your first point that the community that you get is very powerful, not only in terms of you know connections down the line, but also in terms of that motivation that you know when you're surrounded by similar-minded people, it is really, really easy to kind of get caught up in that and um, follow in those same footsteps. Now, I'm going to change gears here a little bit because there's a concept I'd love to get your opinion on. I know you're actually quite outspoken on this, and it's a pretty big problem called pilotitis. Um, I, I've read your blog post. I'm familiar. But for anyone listening, can you maybe explain what pilotitis is and why it's such a big problem in our hospitals? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, one of the, the biggest pain points you hear from people who are trying to innovate in healthcare, um, you know, and, what, and by the way, that, that could mean trying to get, you know, large hospitals and health systems to adopt a, an innovative new disruptive technology or even just an innovative new way of doing things to care for patients. Um, there's this barrier where a lot of times um, organizations will start with what they call pilots or just very small scale tests or experiments of an innovation where, you know, maybe they're going to trial your innovative new product with, you know, 50 patients and then see how it goes. And then hopefully, um, you know, if it's successful, scale it up into, um, you know, broader use across a large hospital or a health system. But the challenge is that, a lot of these quote unquote pilots end up um, not going anywhere past a small trial and then basically just go into a graveyard of pilots and you never hear from them again. And it's a very, it's, it's such a common situation in healthcare where things get tried and then don't go anywhere past a small trial that, um, you know, it's so frequent that, that the term pilotitis exists, um, which, which is kind of telling. Um, and it's, it's in some ways, it's kind of unique to healthcare. You don't hear a lot of other industries with this problem of a lot of 
pilots of new disruptive technologies or innovations that don't end up going anywhere past the pilot. Um, so, I, I mean, I, so basically I wrote this whole article about, um, you know, what I've learned about the challenge of going from pilot to broader innovation scale in a hospital or health system and um, some of the solutions that, that I believe are, are um, a company or an innovator have to take to avoid pilotitis and actually get their solution um, spread. Um, you know, I won't actually go into all the little detail of it, but I think what you often find in healthcare is that there are a lot of really good ideas and disrupted products and technologies that help patients and or help providers and generally have a positive impact. Um, and so lots of people want to trial or pilot your very helpful, innovative solution because they're well-intentioned, they want to improve patient care, but there's this, this unfortunate myth that just because something helps a patient or helps a provider that um, it will automatically be adopted or, and especially um, because a lot of these things aren't free, will automatically be purchased at the other, other end if you know the pilot was uh, well received. The reality is that in an organization like a, a hospital or a health system, if you're asking for dollars to fund something, there's only so many things that can be funded, no matter whether your solution is helpful and, and improves things for patients. The reality is that for any large organization, there's you know only maybe three, five, or 10 priorities that matter that year that the organization's willing to, to invest dollars in. And you know, 90% of the innovations out there that can help patients or providers just won't align with a top three or five priority of an organization this year. And, and so, you know, what you end up realizing is that actually before you even, you know, provide a solution to an organization and implement it, you have to actually talk to the decision makers, the executives, the, the, the CXOs, and actually find out, hey, you know, does my solution actually help with a top three or five priority? Um, because if it does, then they're going to, then they're going to support it. You'll get the resource to make it successful. If it works, they'll want to keep it sustained and growing across the organization because you've established it's solving a top three or five priority. But if it turns out that your solution right now is like the hundredth priority on the list, meaning that there's no way they're going to actually fund it right now, regardless how good a product it is, then doing a pilot was kind of pointless because there was no hope that anyone who could um, scale this would care. Um, and it's an unfortunate reality in healthcare, but, but it makes sense that unfortunately not everything is equally important. Um, but a lot of time and money gets wasted thinking that everything could be equally important just because you're doing good. Um, the, the real world is a lot more complicated than that. That's definitely a very interesting perspective that you bring up. And it's, it's unfortunate that a lot of people's hard work, uh, you know, people who are trying to innovate the healthcare system and help other people, their hard work uh, goes to waste because it can't be funded. But it does make sense that, you know, people, especially healthcare systems, have to have their priorities. Now, uh, regarding, uh, you know, people's work that's aiming to uh, better the future of healthcare, what do you see the future of Seamless MD or patient monitoring and patient engagement looking like? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think we're undergoing this um, transition from what I call remote patient monitoring 1.0 to now what I'm calling remote patient monitoring 2.0. And what 1.0 was this idea that, you know, um, you would use a lot of device-based um, 
hardware and then a bit of software to monitor a patient and you would focus on patients who are, are most at risk. So for example, like if you looked at what remote, remote monitoring was, you know, five or 10 years ago, typically the situation was you have a patient who has, um, you know, a complex chronic disease like heart failure or COPD, which is a lung disease. And these patients are, you know, part of the top 5% of patients who are at risk of bouncing in and out of hospital because their heart failure, you know, just um, gets exacerbated every now and then. And so um, what people would do is they would say, hey, let's monitor these 5% of patients who are most at risk, these patients with these significant chronic diseases, let's send them home with a blood pressure cuff, a weight scale, a pulse oximeter, a heart rate monitor, and let's monitor those vitals in real time. Let's alert a nurse at the hospital. If the patient falls off track, then we'll call them up sooner we'll, and we'll help manage their condition. Um, and that makes a lot of sense for these 5% of patients who have these specific, you know, chronic disease issues. Um, what's changed now um, is that the, the, the world has realized that digital can create similar value for 100% of patients. Because in the same way that technology can help that 5% um, with these very high risk illnesses, we've realized that, you know what, we actually want to engage and monitor patients um, or the other 95% of patients too. So the ones who are new moms going through a pregnancy journey and then a delivery or patients going through um, a cancer journey and needing their side effects monitored for their chemotherapy or patients having a surgery. And, you know, we don't need, for a patient having their knee replaced, we don't have to monitor their, you know, their daily blood pressure, but we have to be able to let them send, um, remote photos of their surgical incisions or track their pain scores or their nausea when they go home. We want to remind them what to do before the surgery digitally. And so, um, but those 95% of patients don't need this, these clunky devices. What they really just need is a way for us to communicate digitally um, with reminders and, and interactive education and symptom tracking and these incision photo monitoring. Um, and really a, a, an almost purely software experience um, because every patient now carries a smartphone or tablet or gets or has access to um, the internet through a web browser. And so what Seamless does is what I call remote monitoring 2.0, which is the idea of let's give every patient um, a digital care journey, no matter if they're going through a low risk journey, a medium risk journey or high risk journey, but every patient has the safety net of a digital experience um, and so that way we catch all the problems earlier. We give every patient a more convenient digital experience. And so it's really a digital for all, I think future, as opposed to a digital for the 5% who need it the most. Um, and even for the patients who are lower risk, um, we're catching issues. You know, I'll tell you right now, like, you know, um, a patient having their, their knee replaced through surgery, um, doesn't have as many, let's call it, um, readmissions as a patient, you know, who's recovering from a heart failure, um, hospital admission, but, you know, we've had patients having a knee replaced who've caught blood clots in our system, got it treated sooner and, and potentially saved their life. And so the fact that we can use digital to make a patient care safer for a hundred percent of patients, that's the future that we're working to build. One thing that I'm really excited about in the next decade or so in the medical industry is this rise of increased products and services to boost patient accessibility, um, whether that's from remote patient monitoring or point of care testing, 
Um, there's a lot of really interesting tech and products on the rise. In particular, Seamless MD catches my interest because you guys are a real Canadian company um, based in Canada. Founders are Canadian, all from Canadian schools. It's, it's really cool to see. Uh, I'm curious, what made you decide to kind of stick in Canada, go through the process of, of building your company as opposed to maybe joining some larger firm in the States? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I remember when we first started um, Seamless, um, you know, people always asked us, um, you know, are we worried that if we, when we try to pitch this in the U.S., um, will we be taken seriously? Will people care about the fact that, you know, our headquarters are in Canada? Some people were suggesting that we, you know, get a quote unquote office in the U.S. just to be able to make it seem like, you know, we had a large U.S. presence. We never did that. You know, we actually never got a U.S. address. Um, all of our U.S. health system customers, many of them are, are, are very large brands like, like Stanford and, and, and um, UC Davis and things like that. And they all, they all know that we're, we're headquartered uh, here in Canada. But I think what we realized was that um, there's so much globalization has happened now and so, so much activity in business has happened between the U.S. and Canada that it, it is very normal um, for both countries to work with um, technology partners across the border. Um, and so it turned out that actually it wasn't an issue at all from a credibility um, standpoint. And in fact, um, I think sometimes we have a unique advantage where there are a lot of Canadians who end up moving to the U.S. in healthcare for, for work. And a lot of those um, stakeholders, when they realize that, oh, wow, Seamless is Canadian too, it, it actually creates this um, subtle bond that gets them excited. It's, it's nostalgic for them. And and actually, in, in, in some relationships, create an advantage for us because we had this unique, you know, social cultural bond with some of the Canadians who are, are working in healthcare in the U.S. So it's actually, I think, at worst, been neutral; at best, been a positive for us. Um, and I think at some point, you know, from a, a cost point of view, it was just it was just more um, cost effective for us as we were growing to just have everything here, right? Um, you know. Um, that being said, though, um, you know, since the pandemic, as everyone knows, you know, more and more folks have, um, you know, begun to work remotely and um, it's a lot more acceptable and practical. And, and, and people have found, I think, realistic that um, you can actually collaborate with folks virtually um, for work. And so I would say, you know, we are starting to explore, you know, let's say bring on team members who are, um, you know, in the U.S. south of the border, especially as we continue to grow our footprint in the U.S. And so I, I think it's likely that we will, we will, you know, start to expand our our team reach. Um, but but I would say that, you know, at least, you know, pre-pandemic, having things here was just more from, a, I think, from a cultural standpoint, having everyone in the same place allows you to move quickly, nimbly, allows you to, to, to be aligned. Um, but then, you know, now that the world has changed, I think we're all rethinking that. And, and, you know, if someone were to restart seamless today, if I were, if I, for all of a sudden it was, was started today and, and not, you know, a uh, number of years ago, maybe we wouldn't have started here. Maybe, or maybe we would, but we have, we would have gone, you know, cross border, um, within the first like 10 employees. I mean, I, I think actually that would have been maybe not, not that unlikely if we were to start it today. So. Thanks so much for joining us, Joshua. Uh, this was a great episode, really interesting stuff. For everyone listening, my name is Jonah. And my name is Arin. And we'd like to thank you for listening to this very special episode. 
Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Beyond the Books Pod, and we'll see you next week.